Was there any evidence to suggest that Mr. Floyd was suffering from a uh, potentially fatal condition on the evening of May 25th, 2020? No. Uh, do you... Uh, have an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty if Mr. Floyd would have died that night had he not been subject to the uh, subdual and restraint of the police? There's no evidence to suggest he would have died that night except for the interactions with law enforcement. Hello and welcome to TNT. I'm your host, Micah McKenzie, and here I give you the spill on all things political, pop culture, and societal issues. In today's episode, I'll be debriefing this past week's court proceedings in the Derek Chauvin trial. This week, the prosecution illuminated some pieces of evidence that may prove to be paramount in this case. And of course, the defense attempted to shed some doubt on these arguments. Although some may view this week as a slam dunk or victory lap for the prosecution, I want to talk about the defense's role in this case and how they are trying to insert reasonable doubt into the prosecution's arguments. Now we have a lot to cover today, so let's jump right on in with our Watched Pot moment. Watched pot never boils. So last week, I briefly talked about the burden of guilt and how it is essentially the duty of the prosecution to prove that the defendant is guilty beyond reasonable doubt to a jury, leaving what I like to call the burden of reasonable doubt on the defense. Now, you heard this phrase here first, folks. So if it becomes trending, just know that they should be giving me credit. Anyways, I like to define the burden of reasonable doubt as the defense's duty to present arguments of reasonable doubt against the prosecution's claims and evidence. Now, this concept of the burden of reasonable doubt is going to prove very important in the next weeks of this trial, particularly because this week, the jury was given specific instructions on how they can determine whether or not Derek Chauvin is guilty. Judge Cahill instructed the jurors that they can only give out a guilty verdict if the prosecution has proved that the position of Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck was a substantial cause of George Floyd's death beyond reasonable doubt. I think that the key phrase in those instructions are substantial cause of death. Because to me, that makes it seem like the state is acknowledging or entertaining the idea that there were multiple factors that could have led to George Floyd's death and that we may not know with 100% accuracy which one was the one that ultimately killed him. However, the prosecution has to prove that despite all of these factors, Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck was a bigger factor than the rest of them. And in watching these past two weeks of live court proceedings, I've noticed that the arguments presented in court seem to be centered around these three topics. Minneapolis Police Department policies, the position of Derek Chauvin's knee, and the possibility of other factors such as a possible drug overdose, possible heart attack, or 
any of the other pre-existing medical conditions that George Floyd had that may have caused his death during his arrest. And today I want to discuss how both the prosecution and the defense have decided to tackle these three topics in their arguments presented in court this week. Throw it up, throw it up. Watch it all fall out. Bow it up, bow it up. That's how we ball out. Throw it up, throw it up. Watch it all fall out. Bow it up, bow it up. That's how we ball out. So first I want to talk about the arguments presented surrounding police policy from this week's court proceedings. Now, if you remember from last week, I talked about uh, one of the witnesses that the prosecution brought up, Chief Homicide Detective Richard Zimmerman. Now, Richard Zimmerman was brought onto the stand to testify about the use of force, seeing as he has such a high rank and his level of training, Judge Cahill deemed him fit to testify his opinion on whether or not he thought that Derek Chauvin's use of force against George Floyd was justifiable or excessive. And he testified that he thought that it was excessive. The prosecution then brings up this point again of Derek Chauvin's use of force being excessive when they call Minneapolis Police Chief Marandaria Arandondo to the stand. And so he is essentially there to talk about the training that police officers receive in the police academy. And so when it came to asking whether or not kneeling on the necks of suspects was a trained tactic, Police Chief Arandondo testified that it was not a trained tactic to kneel on the neck of suspects while they are handcuffed. And he also said that that tactic violated policies surrounding de-escalation training that is taught at the police academy. He goes on to say that before any use of force is implemented, that police officers are trained to de-escalate the situation and to only use force when their methods of de-escalating are not working. He also testifies about the use of administering medical aid and how it is Minneapolis police policy to administer medical aid once a suspect asks for it, or if a suspect is rendered unconscious or stops breathing, police officers are mandated to begin CPR chest compressions on the suspect until medical attention arrives to the scene. The defense in rebuttal claims that Police policy can be messy and often leaves for improvisation when needed. Now, I would like to say that, yes, improvisation is legal to an extent. However, there is still training that police officers receive in regards to what is legally allowed when they use other tactics. And so the prosecution, seeing that point, brought on Katie Blackwell, who is a Minneapolis police inspector and was actually the trainer for all four officers involved in this arrest. And when shown a picture of Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck, she testified that that was absolutely not a trained tactic that they use in the police academy. And so I'll just assert a clip of what she had to say here. I need to ask you, officer, as you look at Exhibit 17, is this a trained technique that's uh, by the Minneapolis Police Department when you were uh, overseeing the training unit? It is not. And how does this differ? I don't know what kind of improvised position that is. So that's not what we train. The next line of questioning leads to the positioning of Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck, upper back, and arms, and whether or not the position of the knee was a substantial factor in George Floyd's death. Now remember, 
the positioning of the knee is extremely important for the jury to find Derek Chauvin guilty or innocent, seeing that the prosecution has to prove that the position of the knee was in fact, beyond reasonable doubt, a substantial factor in George Floyd's death. So the prosecution brings on Dr. Martin Tobin to explain how the added pressure that George Floyd experienced while Derek Chauvin was kneeling on his upper back, neck, and arms caused him to die from asphyxia. And so Dr. Martin Tobin explains that when you breathe, the body uses several muscles and organs located in the upper chest and upper back and muscles that are in organs that are located in the throat. Dr. Tobin also goes on to testify that George Floyd being in the prone position already made it difficult to breathe, but having Derek Chauvin kneeling on his upper back and neck added an additional 91 and a half pounds of pressure, making it even more difficult for him to breathe on top of being in the prone position handcuffed. He also goes on to say that Derek Chauvin's 91 and a half pounds of pressure caused George Floyd's hypopharynx, a muscle in the respiratory system, to constrict and narrow, which blocked his airway and limited his oxygen capacity. Here are a few clips from Dr. Tobin's testimony explaining how Chauvin's kneeling on George Floyd's neck caused the narrowing of the hypopharynx, resulting in death by asphyxia. To formed an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty on the cause of Mr. Floyd's death. Yes, I have. Mr. Floyd died from a low level of oxygen. The cause of the low level of oxygen was shallow breathing. In the case of Mr. Floyd, the narrowing was of his hypopharynx? It was in the hypopharynx, yes. Did the, uh, Mr. Chauvin's knee on the neck then cause the narrowing of the hypopharynx? Yes, it did. When questioned whether or not a perfectly healthy person would have died as a result from this pressure, Tobin testified that even despite George Floyd's pre-existing medical conditions, a perfectly healthy human being would have also died from what George Floyd experienced because 91 and a half pounds of pressure on the neck for a prolonged period of time restricts the airway and lack of oxygen leads to death. Tobin, were you, were, are you aware that Mr. Floyd had some pre-existing health conditions? Yes, I am. Do you have an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty as to whether a person who had none of those pre-existing health conditions, a healthy person, would have died under the same circumstances as Mr. Floyd? Yes, a healthy person subjected to what Mr. Floyd was subjected to would have died. Now, the defense comes back in rebuttal and claims that Derek Chauvin wasn't on George Floyd's neck for the total nine minutes and 29 seconds that we see of the video. So it's possible that the knee wasn't the cause. However, Dr. Tobin disputes this claim, claiming that Derek Chauvin was on George Floyd's neck for a majority of the video, measuring at about five minutes and five seconds total, which was more than enough time combined with that amount of pressure to narrow George Floyd's hyperpharynx and cause him to die from asphyxia. Where, if you consider all the nanoseconds and milliseconds, in the five minutes and three seconds, where was Mr. Chauvin the vast majority of that time? He was on Mr. Floyd's neck and uh, on his back and arm. Uh, right, not constantly changing. No. After both the defense and prosecution 
make their arguments surrounding the positioning of Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck and back and whether or not it was a substantial factor in George Floyd's death. The line of questioning shifts to other possibilities and factors that may have led to his death. Now, the defense proposes that the level of methamphetamines and fentanyl found in George Floyd's system, in combination with his pre-existing heart conditions that he was suffering at the time, were enough to cause an overdose or possible heart attack. And so the prosecution calls toxologist and pathologist Dr. Daniel Ischenschmutt, who testifies that the level of drugs found in George Floyd's system at the time of his autopsy were relatively low in comparison to those who died from an overdose and even lower than those who were caught in a DUI. Now, this is extremely important because it really rules out the possibility that George Floyd could have died from an overdose seeing as the level of drugs in his system were too low. The prosecution also calls forensic pathologist Lindsay Thomas and chief medical examiner Andrew Baker to testify to their findings in George Floyd's autopsy and to explain why they wrote the death certificate the way that they did. Dr. Lindsay and Dr. Baker go on to say that during the autopsy, they too came to the same conclusion as Dr. Daniel Ischenschmutt, that the levels of drugs found in George Floyd's system were too low to rule the cause of death as an overdose. They also testified that while examining his organs, they saw no sign of heart injury or anything that would reflect a heart attack or heart-related issues that could have caused his death. Uh, did, was there any evidence that Mr. Floyd suffered from a heart attack? No. Uh, if you uh, bring to mind what was found during the autopsy, was there any injury found to Mr. Floyd's heart whatsoever? No. So if we talk about, for example, uh, dead heart muscle cells, any dead heart muscle cells seen on autopsy? Not that Dr. Baker described and not that I saw, no. They also go on to comment that although George Floyd suffered from hypertension, meaning that his heart weighed more than the average person and had to work more to circulate blood throughout his body, his medical condition was not severe enough that it would have caused death. And had he not experienced his encounter with the Minneapolis Police Department that day, he would have gone on to live throughout the rest of the day. Was there any evidence to suggest that Mr. Floyd was suffering from a uh, potentially fatal condition on the evening of May 25th, 2020? No. Uh, do you uh, have an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty if Mr. Floyd would have died that night had he not been subject to the uh, subdual and restraint of the police? There's no evidence to suggest he would have died that night except for the interactions with law enforcement. Dr. Baker also testifies as to why they ruled George Floyd's cause of death as positional asphyxia and the manner of death as homicide. Classified as a homicide, Mr. Floyd's use of fentanyl did not cause the subdual or neck restraint. His heart disease did not cause the, um, the subdual or the neck restraint. Now, the cause and manner of death from the autopsy and death certificate are extremely important and paramount to the prosecution's argument. Because the manner of death was ruled as homicide, that legally rules out the possibility of overdose or heart attack. Because if George Floyd had died from an overdose, Dr. Baker would have been required to rule the manner of death as accidental or suicidal if it was done purposefully. And if he had died from a heart attack, 
it would have been from natural causes. Baker said he determined that George Floyd's cause of death was positional asphyxia, seeing that he was in the prone position for a prolonged period of time, in addition to the 91 and a half pounds of pressure that were put on his neck while Derek Chauvin was kneeling on top of him during his arrest. Now that I have gone through and explained the main arguments made in court this week, I wanna take a moment to just sip on this for a second. So the jury was given specific instructions on how they can come up with a guilty verdict against Derek Chauvin. And the instructions were that the prosecution has to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the position of Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck was a substantial factor that led to his death. Again, the key word in these instructions are substantial factor. I wanna know is, is the court providing some sort of definition or standard for what is considered to be a substantial factor? Because if not, there are gonna be 12 different definitions as to what can be considered substantial. And this, this is where I think that a lot of liberals and left-leaning people are being blindsided. This word substantial is very objective and broad. It could mean anything if the court isn't giving them some sort of standard to hold that to. And so all Eric Nelson has to do is plant a tiny microscopic seed of doubt in the mind of one juror for all of this to go to hell. And I have to question that considering that this is a police misconduct case, why, why this specific instruction was given to determine a guilty verdict? Seeing that Derek Chauvin is being charged with second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter, why this narrow specific instruction to determine a guilty verdict. Now, I'm not saying that there's something at play here, but I definitely think that this is something that people need to be paying attention to because this word substantial could be the downfall to the prosecution's argument. Now, do I think that in the past two weeks that Eric Nelson has done a good job of planting any seeds of doubt against the prosecution's argument? In my opinion, no. I think that the prosecution has made it clear that Derek Chauvin's actions were against police policy in terms of force uh, and negligence regarding in the administration of medical aid. They've proven that. They've also proven that kneeling on someone's neck for a prolonged period of time can lead to asphyxia. And I think that this week, the prosecution has done a pretty good job at debunking the seeds of doubt regarding the other possible medical factors that Eric Nelson tried to propose in court this week. But again, it's not up to me to decide whether or not Eric Nelson is doing a good job and shouldering the burden of reasonable doubt. That's up to the jury. And again, 12 different people, 12 different definitions of substantial. So 
Who knows how this is going to turn out? I'm glad that you hung in there with me, but I hope you'll stay for the last drops. So, again, after this week of court proceedings, I have the same questions that I had last week. Um, I know that a lot of us want to believe that the prosecution has this in the bag and that this week was a slam dunk. And I want to believe that too, especially coming off of this week and seeing just how the prosecution's arguments was really solidified through the evidence and the witnesses that they produced and presented. I'm still questioning whether or not Eric Nelson is really making the right decisions to provide a significant defense for Derek Chauvin. Now, again, I mean, of course, I think that that is a good thing, seeing as I think he's guilty in the murder of George Floyd. But as I was watching this week's court proceedings, I found it strange as to who Eric Nelson decided to cross-examine. Because as we saw, this week was like the week of bringing on experts and solidifying what is state policy, what is excessive force, what's justifiable force. Um, Did he die of an overdose? Did he die of a heart attack? Is it possible? Is it not possible? And it just seems like all of the seeds of doubt that Eric Nelson was trying to plant were immediately disproved by all the witnesses and evidence that the prosecution produced this week. And so I just wonder why he would choose to question some of the experts, especially since a lot of the experts' testimonies aligned with the claims of the prosecution. I don't know if he thought that maybe in questioning he would be able to find a clever way to find evidence that supported his reasons of doubt. If you don't have the chance to watch the whole week's worth of court proceedings, I highly encourage you to watch this week's highlights because, I mean, the questioning from the defense was honestly brutal. You know, the defense took a beating this week. Um, And I just don't know if Eric Nelson is making all of the right choices to aid in Derek Chauvin's defense. I know last week I questioned whether or not Derek Chauvin would testify, but after doing some research, I don't think that he will. It would be highly unbeneficial for him to testify, especially now, seeing as the prosecution has solidified what with state policy at the time and what constitutes excessive force and that they've had several experts come in and explain that Chauvin's use of force was one, against state policy, two, excessive by several experts, and three, just the tactics that he used were not anything related to what the Minneapolis Police Academy teaches its police officers. So I I highly doubt that he will be testifying, but you know, I am not a fortune teller. Only time will tell whether or not he chooses to testify. I mean, it would be certainly be surprising. It would probably be damaging to his defense if he did testify. So I'm sure he won't, but who knows? It's a possibility. But if you don't have the time to watch the week's court proceedings in full, 
I highly, highly, highly encourage you to find a trusted news source to stay updated on this case, because as I've said before, this is definitely a monumental case in how we view the Black Lives Matter movement and how we view police brutality and police reform. And so I highly encourage my listeners to stay updated any way that you can. Hi, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. If you haven't already, feel free to follow me on Instagram at Micah Hinton and at Micah underscore McKenzie, where you can comment or DM your suggestions for topics you think I should cover here at TNT. I hope you stay tuned for next week's debriefing of the Derek Chauvin court case. Thank you so much for listening and keep sipping.